Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds Podcast. My name is Claudia and together with Desi, we are honored to have the opportunity to talk to Jacqueline van den Ende today. Jacqueline is the CEO and co-founder of Amsterdam-based climate fintech company Carbon Equity, which seeks to connect capital to climate technology startups by enabling access for retail investors to climate venture capital, private equity and other alternative asset classes. Jacqueline brings a rather unique perspective as a founder turned investor and founder twice over. And as a student, she co-founded Decline Consultant uh, and later founded Rocket Internet Bait Lamundi Group in the Philippines and helped scale Southeast Asian fintech mobile wallet, True Money. Jacqueline is the perfect person to talk to about the intersection of climate and finance as her career now turned to the question on how to allocate capital effectively in order to steer the planet towards a sustainable future. Welcome to Green Minds Podcast, Jacqueline. Thank you. That was an impressive introduction. <laughs> um, so I already touched upon uh, some parts of your story, but could you maybe please uh, tell us more about why you chose entrepreneurship, VC, and you know how you stumbled upon into VC in your career? Yeah, um, I think I've had a startup dream ever since I was really young. Um, it started when I was maybe 18. I have a lot of ideas. Like typically once a month I have a business idea and it sort of falls from the sky and typically with a name and everything. And um, and so my first company as a student was indeed the Kleine Consultant. And I've been switching between entrepreneurship and investing roles more or less every four or five years. And so... As a student, founded the Clinical Consultant, my first company, then went into private equity for four years, went back to entrepreneurship for six years, accidentally became a VC investor, and then quickly switched back to entrepreneurship. I, like, the, the, I think both are related to building, uh, but for me, my heart is really in entrepreneurship. I love the idea of having an idea and then building a company and leaving something behind. And as an investor, it's super cool to, you know, see what's happening in the industry and you get to facilitate all of these startups, but you're not building the company yourself. And ultimately, I really want to build it. So that's why I gravitated back from VC into entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And um, just to follow up on maybe the, the story a bit. So how after finding a client consultant, maybe could you please describe us briefly uh, what it was about and how did you then end up in the Philippines? Yeah, um, so the Klein Consultant is the largest nonprofit student-run strategy consultant in the Netherlands. We also have an office, or used to have an office in the UK, I think, and one in Stockholm. Um, and uh, what we did was, uh, with a whole bunch of students, we gave almost free or affordable strategic advice to small companies, startups, and at times big companies. The insight came when I was working in a, in a small cinema in Amsterdam, and uh, my friends were all film and movie students, and they wanted to start a company together. And they came to me and they asked for advice because they couldn't figure out how to do it. And so we sat for two hours and really identified very clearly, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And then like, it occurred to me, okay, this is what you should do. And then I walked out of the cinema that night and suddenly the idea for the clinical Zulden fell from the sky, including the name, because I suddenly realized, okay, on the one hand, you've got smart students who are going to these business courses with McKinsey, Bain, Boston Consulting Group. On the other hand, there are thousands of small businesses who have great ideas, but lack business sense. And so the Kleine Consultant brings smart students together with yeah, small companies and leverages the brain power. And then you've got top consultants such as McKinsey, Bain, uh, Boston Consulting Group that support all, and coach all of these students. So the students get free advice, the customers, uh, sorry, the students get training and, uh, and, get, uh, from, and get coaching from top consultants. The companies get affordable strategic advice, if not free. And then um, the big consultants get an important talent pool. 
And so after my career, I thought I wanted to go into strategy consulting. I accidentally ended up being an investor. I knew absolutely nothing about private equity when I got hired as a private equity investor. <laughs> but um, I, I went to this um, this application of Hall Investments. It's an eight and a half, nine billion euro uh, private equity fund in the Netherlands. And they hire one or two people per year. And typically these are literally, you know, rocket scientists or <laughs> really physics whiz kids. And I was none of those. And so when I got invited to interview with them, I gave myself zero chances to make it and when they made me an offer afterwards I was so surprised I thought well this is a <laughs> this is so surprising I'm gonna do it so I canceled my interview at McKinsey and uh, and embarked on an adventure as an uh, as an investor which was fun I mean investing is a really cool job and you really learn a lot and I think the biggest thing that you learn as an investor is to think uh, in consultancy I think you learn to follow much more frameworks to apply frameworks but in investing you really learn to think in first principles, you know, where's the world heading and what technologies or what companies do I believe in? And so it was very valuable uh, and I learned a lot, but ultimately I really felt throughout my years like, okay, this is super interesting, but I'm on the wrong side of the table. I, I literally noticed that I envied entrepreneurs. Like I had such a clear dream and I always felt like, oh, I, I looked up, you know, to people who were building their own companies. I wanted that freedom. And so I wrote uh, at some point, I, I, I changed my password into startup 2013 so that I would remind myself every single day of that ambition to become a startup. And I started telling people, like anybody that I would meet, you know, that I had that startup dream. And, and when you tell people about your dreams, what happens is that people will be like, oh, you know, I know somebody who can help you with that. And so via via, I got connected to, uh, at the time, Rocket Internet. And Rocket Internet at the time was building a lot of big uh, e-commerce businesses. They powered Zalando, HelloFresh, uh, Deliveroo, etc. And they said to me, um, well, what do you think about building a company abroad? And, uh, and, and, uh, and I thought, well, why not? <laughs> and um, yeah, so this is how I ended up in the Philippines of all places. I had never been in the Philippines. Uh, but um, yeah, I was single. I... You know, I was <laughs> I was ready to go on an adventure, and I thought if it if it you know if it's horrible, I'll be back in a year. But I stayed there for over six years. So yeah, that's so awesome. And so I mean, it's pretty interesting that you you know built built a company in Southeast Asia. Um, I'm sure that you you know you got a lot of uh, learnings from that, and it yeah. influenced your career to date. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your experience there? Kind of what were some of the learnings that you you had, and and how this um, this influenced your career to date? Yeah, it was. Very valuable. I think in two ways. I think the first is I learned to build businesses from scratch and led businesses from one person. We started with a three-person team, me and two interns, and I uh, led uh, all the way up to 500, leading 500 people. Wow. And the other thing is more about um, the scale of the climate problem. But maybe to start with the first, um, I uh, went to the Philippines and my assignment was to build uh, the online real estate platform of the Philippines. Um, so a pretty basic model. And I arrived in the Philippines with two interns. I was 28. They were, I don't know, 23, 24. <laughs> we had no experience whatsoever in building businesses. And um, we started hiring people. And this was where everything went wrong. Um, because in the Netherlands, and I think also in the UK, when you go to university, that's probably a good university. You know what kind of quality you get from hiring somebody who went to university. 
But in the Philippines, uh, it's a, quite a jungle of educational institutions. So having gone to university doesn't say much about some of these qualifications. So we had no idea how to navigate the field of talent. And we would get into the wildest situations that people were like, um, I'm sorry, I can't come to the interview, but is it okay if my mother applies? <laughs> um, we had somebody who during the interview actually packed her bag and went to the toilet and never returned. 50% of the people that we hired never showed up for a first day of interview. And then another 50% after two weeks wouldn't show up <laughs> for the job anymore and typically also would not return their laptop. And so we, we, we had a lot of wild things. And... What it taught me is um, initially we were under a lot of pressure. Rocket Internet companies were high growth companies. And, you know, I had to build a team of like 30 people in, in four months, more more that. So when we had a position, you know, the goal was just to fill the position. And it didn't really matter, you know, who you were as long as you could do the job. And that was mistake number one. Like your company will only be as good as the people that you hire. And this is really the beginning and the end of, of success of a company. And so what I've learned, I've had the privilege in leading companies from, from one to 500 people of hiring literally dozens, uh, if not hundreds of people. And initially I made a ton of mistakes until I learned to become very, very critical. So I typically score candidates on a scale of one to five, where three is good enough, like somebody who is good enough to do the job. And, and five is like absolutely amazing. And, and one is kind of criminal. <laughs> and, and I learned to never, ever hire a three. Never hire somebody who can just do the job. You always want to hire somebody that is excellent because that person will really be, you know, deliver 3x, 5x the value and you want to invest in these people. So mm -hmm. pay them more or, you know, pay, pay well, but you will really get uh, so much, uh, such a stronger, strong company if you hire exactly the right people. Mm -hmm. So that was a super valuable and, and great lesson. And I mean, there were many other things that I learned mm -hmm. also about my leadership, mm -hmm. you know, my failings also as a leader, mm -hmm. uh, my, um, a lot about cultural communications mm -hmm. uh, in the Philippines or Southeast Asia. Communication is a lot less direct and Dutch people are very direct. And so, um, so I made quite some mistakes there. Mm -hmm. But I think the other insight was living in Manila. And um, Manila is a city of 20 million people. Uh, Manila... Yeah, 20 million people, it's, it's packed. Um, there is one highway. Uh, the highway is so jam-packed that you can, literally can't fit another car in that street. You know, you can drive an average of four to 10 kilometers per hour. You know, so uh, a drive that should take 20 minutes can take up to two and a half hours. Like, no, no kidding. And people, there was one small subway. And people would have to line up for hours, you know, to get on the subway. I had employees who would have to wake up at like 4 a.m. and they would get home at 11 p.m. And that is, you know, it, it gets you a little bit out of the European bubble. Because in the Netherlands, and I guess also here in London, you know, people have a pretty high and comfortable standard of living. And things like climate change affect you and you see it but not at all at the scale that you see it in countries such as Southeast Asia. And, you know, here when we have natural disasters, we have a buffer. We have a financial buffer. We have the government to jump in. There people have absolutely no buffer. So when you have like typhoons, which get stronger every year, there is no, there's no buffer for these people to survive financially. 
And then there's also like the expanding footprints. So 20 million people in the city, 110 million people in the Philippines. And one of the big industries in the Philippines is the outsourcing industry. And so people get, you know, better salaries, which is on one hand a great thing. But what happens when they get better salaries is uh, they immediately start to grow their footprint. So people want to fly. That's number one priority. We're, you know, the Instagram generation. So everybody wants to fly. And then you want an air conditioning and maybe you want your own car. And what was also very like obvious to me being there is the world, you know, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg of, you know, people sort of moving into the middle class, especially if you look at places like China. And the world by far and enough does not have enough resources to accommodate this in the way that we do. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so motivated to, you know, invest in technology or to enable investment in technology to enable for more people the same lifestyle that Western people have enjoyed for the longest time, but with no or much lower footprint because the world just cannot handle it. And, and yes, of course, these people deserve exactly the same privilege and, and resources that, you know, I have also enjoyed. I'm also skeptical, you know, about the extent to which we as consumers are willing to dial down, you know, I think during COVID suddenly everybody was very sustainably aware, et cetera, and not flying. And now, you know, the airports are overloaded and we're, we've fully bounced back to our own lifestyles. People don't want to change. So what I want to spend the next 10 years on is building low carbon, no carbon alternatives um, to, uh, yeah, to, to our consumption patterns. That's not to say that we shouldn't lessen consumption. I think we need to do everything all at once. So we need carbon taxes, we need government action, we need consumers to be much more aware and, and really to be as sustainable as they can. And on top of that, we need technology and we need alternatives. Um, yeah. Also, what you talked about with growth, um, we had a little discussion in our economics class now mm. recently about um, you know, how, whether we can live sustainably enough but still grow, like this yeah. anti-growth or degrowth debate for yes. green growth. Um, I'm sure you could also talk about that for hours. but. Um, so I want to come back to before carbon equity. Um, so you mentioned the Philippines as one place where you realized what you want to dedicate your future career to. Yeah. Was this the only inspiration or was there some kind of other aha moment where you realized, oh, this is what I want to go into? And the second part of the question is, why did you choose to kind of build this climate finance or climate slash finance um, company in mm -hmm. the private markets um, yeah. area? Yeah. Um... I have great love for nature. I'm an active surfer, a North Sea surfer. <laughs> we have the worst waves in the world, <laughs> but um, but nonetheless, um, I love snowboarding. I love mountain climbing. Uh, so I think I've always had a great affinity for nature. Uh, I respect nature a lot and have been interested in climate change from an early age. In 2007, I already participated in the Ben and Jerry's Climate Change College I wrote my master thesis on uh, feed-in tariffs, which was horribly boring, by the way. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, so it's always been a topic. But I think, and I think that it's been on my mind since Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. I think that was in 2004. But it really moved from background awareness to top of mind. Holy shit. Like, we really need to spend everything, you know, all the talent and time that I have uh, on on this cause. And I think that moment, that insight came in 2019 when I read the book, The Sixth Extinction. It's a book by Elizabeth Colbert. I highly recommend it. 
And she talks about the five major extinctions in the, in the history of the planet, amongst others, uh, the dinosaurs going extinct. And uh, she details how now since the Industrial Revolution, um, temperature changes uh, and loss of biodiversity, phenomena that have happened in the past during prior extinctions, are now being compressed into a timescale of less than 300 years. And that speed is something the world has never, ever experienced. Mm -hmm. If you come to think of it, I think we lost 70% of biodiversity since 1970. I'm from 1984. Probably you guys are 90s or 2000s. <laughs> but that's not long ago. Wow. That is shocking. And, and what it helped me realize is, you know, that ends at some point. The, the humanity cannot exist in isolation. And... We're very, very close to one and a half degrees upon after which we know that certain tipping points uh, will happen and climate change impact that is already happening can, 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 can tip into sort of the uncontrollable sphere. And, uh, and it will have a dramatic impact on our lives and the lives of our children, let alone the lives of our children. I think our generation of, especially in the Western world, is extremely short-sighted like at no point do we ever think about our children or our children's children or the children of our children's children you know like we're not thinking multi-generational we're really only thinking about you know the now and at least maybe five years maybe 10 years but we need to think about like much more like asian cultures who really think in in over generations you know i think we need 300 year plans and not like quarterly plans um so for me, that was a turning point that I thought, what on earth am I spending my time on <laughs> you know, like, in my previous role as a partner at uh, B Capital, which is, I mean, it's a really cool fund investing in software as a service and marketplace solutions. But, you know, the bottom line was that I was making rich people richer by investing in productivity solutions. And I couldn't warrant that. I really want to spend every moment of time and every inch of talent that I have in solving, uh, helping solve climate change. And I chose the weapon of capital to do that. So I think, you know, everybody has their own weapon. And mine is, is capital because I come from a private equity and a venture capital and a fintech background. So I said, you know, how can I have most impact uh, with capital? Yeah, so that's what we're currently trying to do. Um, you asked me, like, why, why private equity? Um, so I started off with my co-founders with the question, how do we move the needle on climate change with capital? Like, how do we do it? Because, you know, if you if you look at sort of ESG, you know, sort of sustainable fund investing, like on the stock exchange, I think there's like several trillions. Like, I don't remember the stats exactly, but I think we need to be investing like three trillion a year and probably we have like three and a half trillion in sustainable investments. And so our, our first question was like, where is the impact? You know, what actually happens when I buy listed stocks on the stock market? Like, let's say I buy a share of Tesla. What changes in a real world economy? And the answer is not that much, like if anything, because ultimately I buy a stock from you. Maybe you make a return, but no money goes into the company. And secondly, the additionality that you have in it as an individual shareholder is, is zero to none. Um, so our observation was, like, if you really want to have an impact, an impact is defined as how do I move from situation A to situation B? How do I do that? Then you have much more impact investing in private markets, especially in venture capital and growth equity. So investing in early stage companies and in scale-up companies, you're really innovating new technologies. 
97% of all companies in the world are not listed on the stock exchange, 97%. So, you know, by far and away, most climate technology companies are not listed on the stock exchange. They need the capital. Capital is a life or death situation for these startups to scale up. So you have way more impact. You have a direct impact funding, growth, innovation, technology for these companies when you invest in private markets. And secondly, you have much greater additionality as an individual investor because there's much more friction for these companies to raise funding than for big listed companies. So that's why we want to unlock private wealth to power the world's most impactful climate technology companies through private market funds. That's so interesting. Um, so can you just describe a little bit more about car how carbon equity works? I mean, yeah. you briefly mentioned it, but just yeah. concretely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, we said, okay, we want to be investing in private markets, but how do we do that in the best way? Mm -hmm. You know, we could have started our own venture capital funds, um, or we could have started like an angel uh, investing or crowd equity type platform. So we started off with like, what makes sense for the retail investor? Now, let's say you're a investor. We focus on what we call mass affluence, so not retail. Retail mass affluence is defined as people with a net worth between 100,000 euros and 10 million euros, right? So not yet full-scale democratization. That's the next step. We want to get there, but like this is our, let's say, beachhead market. Um, if these people want to invest in, in, uh, in, in sustainability, what are the options? The first thing is they can buy listed stocks or ESG funds, and we just concluded that has very little impact. Secondly, what you can do is crowd equity. So you've got platforms such as Cedars or Crowdcube, for example, here in the UK. And there you can invest in individual companies. That can have impact uh, and is really fun to do, but it's also very, very risky. You know, the survival chances of an individual startup are less than 10%, maybe less than 5%. So like investing in a single company, having to do the work yourself to make the investment decision, and then, you know, having exposure to that single company is very resource time intensive and it's very risky. So what do what do the pros do? You know, well, the pros, if you look at like ultra high net worths or professional institutional investors, they invest in funds. Why do they invest in funds? Because you get to benefit from professional management. People are absolute experts in the field and do nothing other than making the right investments. And secondly, you get to diversify because you're not investing in a single company, but in, you know, in a basket of like maybe 20 companies or 30 companies. And so, so we said, well, the, the logical thing to do, the, the most sensible thing to do is to invest in funds. But it's very hard for retail investors to invest in funds because typically you need 5 million euros at least to get into one of the good funds. And, um, and 5 million euros is a lot. Even if you had 20 million euros, you know, like then to commit 5 million euros to a single fund would be a hell of a lot of money. So what Carbon Equity seeks to do is a couple of things. One, we select the very best funds. So out of 800 global climate technology funds, we've developed a special diligence framework to assess the quality of impact of these funds to really select the very best climate impact funds. And then we also assess the financial health, you know, is this also financially attractive type investment? And then out of those 800, we select, let's say the top two, 3% very best funds. And then we lower the access and the access hurdle. So typically you can invest in funds from not from 5 million, but from 100,000 euros on the Carbon Equity platform. And recently we launched a climate investment club, which enables access from 10,000 euros. The vision there from 10,000 euros is that almost anybody, you know, 30s upwards with a pension, with some savings, with a inheritance can help build the future by investing in these type of companies. 
And then the third thing that we do is do that in a digital environment where our ambition is not just to move money, but really to move people. And our thinking is when people get to invest in, they become invested in. They feel ownership and you literally become a shareholder of the net zero economy. It's super cool to be investing in these in these technologies. We're talking about uh, zero carbon cement. You know, there are companies like Biomason who use biotechnology to create cement. Cement is responsible for 8% of global carbon emissions. So that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, hydrogen trucks. Um, uh, uh, maybe um, plant-based uh, sushi. You know, there are so many cool innovations across the whole spectrum from agro-food, mobility, industry, etc. So... It's super cool to be investing in these companies. It gives us the belief that, yes, we can. We can solve and, and crack this problem. So it's a very optimistic way of you know, having people be involved in, in fighting climate change. And it also shows us, hopefully, what's on the other side of the rainbow. You know, I think in the, talking about climate change, it's always talking about the problem. But if we invest in these technologies, you know, there's, such a, a, there's a, a much more beautiful world on the other side of that spectrum. Think about, you know... In 30 years, hopefully we won't have gasoline cars. And so think about places like Manila and Jakarta and, and Bombay where where the air is literally toxic. You know, in 30 years, it's going to be entirely clean because you only have electric cars. Think about, you know, not depleting our Earth's resources, but being able to do regenerative agriculture as a result of which, you know, you get endless resources. Think about free energy from solar and wind, which has zero marginal costs. Like, so... What I also want to create is a little bit of a vision of what is the world that we, you know, that we can sprint towards. We need, in the whole climate discussion, I think we need a little bit more of a man on the moon type vision that people can be energized by because people are not energized by fear and by, you know, the, 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 the anxiety about loss and all the, all the negative information. Exactly. So I do think we need to be realistic and, and you know, we have a huge, you know, we have a huge problem in front of us, but there's also something we're fighting for. And so Carbon Active for our platform seeks to educate people through webinars, through online events, through offline events, to really also be a community for climate investors and people want to put their money and their resources behind fighting climate change. That's so awesome. Yeah, I also get goosebumps as well. <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking because I really can associate with what you're trying yeah. to do. And yeah. we also had a talk recently, and uh, this was this musician, this British musician, who said, um, who kind of tried to make an analogy between art and climate change, that the climate oh. scientists alone cannot do the job, but also yeah. that we need to kind of adopt this, let's say, this is quite um, um, philosophical, but like mm. artist thinking of imagining a world that is worth fighting for, not fighting Very much. something fighting against. That's such a good, I, I think that's what is lack, that's lacking in the narrative, mm. you know, also like in the political narrative, we don't know what we're fighting for. And people are motivated by something that is better, not something that is, people are not really motivated to fight for the status quo, because we don't understand what we've lost until it's gone. You know, that's, that is sort of a basic human reality. We don't understand how valuable it is what we have until it's no longer there. And so therefore we need to paint a picture of what's what's more, what's better. I think, I, I totally agree. And I think art has a lot to do with that. Yeah. That was just a little side note, uh, but you spoke about um, some of the, let's say climate technologies that um, carbon equity is investing in. Could you maybe kind of name, I don't know if you have that uh, yeah. classification, but uh, which types of companies are the funds investing in? Yeah. And maybe your favorite like the areas you're most excited about even maybe examples of companies yeah cool 
there are six areas. And the first is agro-food. How are we going to feed a growing population with way less emissions than we currently do? Where do those emissions come from? Land use, deforestation, huge problem in, in places like Brazil, for example. Uh, methane uh, from uh, cows. This is why we should eat uh, less meat, for example. Uh, but also plastic waste is obviously a huge problem in uh, the whole uh, whole food industry. Emissions from um, uh, from fertilizer is a huge nitrogen problem, nitrogen oxide problem. Um, and so agri-food, first huge theme. Second is mobility. How are we going to travel the world? And that's not only passengers, you know, passenger cars, but it's also shipping, which is responsible for 3% of global emissions. Uh, it's aviation. Uh, it's trucks, for example, to transport. The third theme is the built environment. Um, how are we going to... Yeah, uh, power our buildings and especially heat them and cool them. I think we're going to have another 1 billion air conditioners by 2050. <laughs> and this is sort of like a circular problem, right? It's a feedback loop because the world is heating up and then you've got these air conditioners and they're draining, you know, they, they consume so much energy. And they also have this fluor cooling uh, uh, fluids in there, which are highly, highly uh, strong uh, green gas, uh, greenhouse gases. So world is heating up. We need more air conditioning and we heat up the world. So, like, so how are we going to do that without carbon emissions? The fourth theme is energy and energy storage. So obviously renewable energy, but also how are we going to store that energy efficiently when the wind does not uh, blow and the sun does not shine? Exactly. And the fifth is industry, which is the hardest. Uh, so steel, um, cements, and chemicals are responsible for approximately 31% of total global emissions. And these are very hard, very fossil intensive industries. And so how are we going to do that without emissions? And then the sixth is uh, carbon capture and storage. Because even if we stop emitting uh, emissions, like literally today, we would still have to um, retrieve carbon out of the atmosphere to limit warming below one and a half degrees. So uh, there's like, it, basically, it's a whole economy. <laughs> so, I mean, we literally need to rebuild every cornerstone, every break of the economy. Mm -hmm. Some of my favorites are, so Form Energy is a really cool company. And what they do is long duration energy storage. Mm -hmm. And um, so they developed an iron air battery. And how this works, it's like sort of a big brick of iron. And then when a current runs through it, it de-rusts. And when, it, when there's no current, it rusts. So you have a reversible rusting process. And apparently, that's a super cheap way to store energy up to 100 hours. So the whole life cycle cost of you know, storing this is way lower than the cost that of currently um, burning uh, gas uh, when uh, to solve the intermittency problem. So it's a really low-cost problem. Very effective in storing energy for several days. And this is going to be a mega solution uh, for almost any renewable energy plant. And so this company recently raised $450 million. It's the first unicorn in, in one of our fund portfolios. Uh, so that's a really cool one. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. That's what you say. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, is there is there one industry in, in particular or one field in, in climate that you feel needs to get more attention and more people need, need to start talking about it? Because there's a lot of noise yeah. in a lot of different industries that mm. you mentioned. Mobility, carbon capture is really picking up now. Yes. Some people are talking about biodiversity loss. Um, so is yes. there like a field that you're like, okay, we need to do much more action. Yeah. We need to invest more in these companies. We need more entrepreneurs to build companies in these fields. Or, yeah. Um, like, Definitely. Your, your thoughts are about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we need innovation. We need capital across the whole spectrum. But um, there are definitely areas that are harder. So what you see also with the whole rush of people rushing into, you know, climate investing and climate entrepreneurship is people pick up on the low hanging fruits first, obviously. And some stuff is really hard to do. So what is hard to do is deep tech. And so think of companies. Uh, cement uh, is a huge problem. I think we have five different companies now in our portfolios that are solving this. One company like Biomason, they use biotechnology. They were inspired by how corals form and they use that science to create cement without carbon emissions, which is really awesome. Mm -hmm. And then another company, Carbon Cure, they capture carbon in cement factories and then they inject it into the cement mm -hmm. to fortify the cement. Mm -hmm. These are really cool innovations, but they're very R&D intensive. Mm -hmm. So it can take a very long time for you to get from initial innovation to scale. Because like there are several steps there. One is you need to prove that your technology works. Then that you can actually scale that commercially. And three, that you can really get large-scale adoption. Because having a good solution is one thing. Being able to sell it into a very archaic and old-school industry at scale mm -hmm. is a whole other ballgame. So it can take 10 up to 20 years, if not longer, for such an innovation to really get there. And so there are fewer entrepreneurs that are able to do this. And there are much fewer investors that are willing, you know, to have that kind of patience exactly. and to take on that kind of risk. Yeah. Yeah. So it's much harder. The other category is um, companies where it's unclear what the business model may be. Mm -hmm. and, and one of those is biodiversity, right? So like or nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. Those are solutions where it's unclear how we're gonna make money. And so carbon credits can be a model with which we can, for example, nature-based solutions, I think of, um, or direct air capture. The only business model that they have is a carbon price. The carbon price is currently 85 euros per ton. Uh, so if you, so that's then your only business model. But that's pretty risky mm -hmm. because it's susceptible to regulation. It's susceptible to market swings. So those are harder to finance. Biodiversity is a similar thing. There's one company in our portfolio that deals with biodiversity. It's called Nature Metrics. I've heard of it. It's super cool. Yeah. They started off with sort of like a testing kit. And so you could test sort of in your environment what the biodiversity was. And so you can measure year on year how biodiversity is um, progressing or degressing, right? Mm -hmm. And now they're turning that into like a, a huge database of uh, biodiversity and they really want to, they actually have a name for it similar to like carbon so that you really create a language, a vocabulary, a metric for biodiversity. And that I think is hugely impactful because what we can measure is what we can steer towards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, but those are the hardest solutions where we need way more innovation. For sure, for sure, yeah. definitely agree. I was going to say about biodiversity because that's like something we've also discussed in our course that it's so difficult to measure, right? So how do you measure diversity? So yeah. nature, nature metrics, I'm going to definitely yeah. have a look. Uh -huh. Exactly. Um, yeah, they basically measure the amount of uh, diverse DNA 
So you can uh, measure all of the species that are in your area and then you can compare it to like a global database. And it's, yeah, it's really wow. cool. No, that's super inspiring. Um, I, I just want to stay for a bit at carbon equity for maybe um, our listeners who are more interested in building or like a career maybe in private markets or yeah. you know how these things uh, work. So could you maybe walk us through the investment process, like how yeah. you choose funds, maybe how many yes. you're invested in, what's your AUM and assets under management, investment yeah. horizon, or these like geeky cool. specifics? Yeah, you're already all into the finance lingo. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so... So really, that, that is really core of what we do. We have an investment team of, I think, six, seven people. And so they start with landscaping, like making sure that we are tracking every single climate fund out there. We especially look at European and U.S. funds, but increasingly also starting to look at funds in Asia emerging markets. Mm -hmm. So then step one is really climate diligence. And uh, so for us, this is one of the most important steps because we will not compromise on climate diligence. And climate diligence is meant to understand uh, what, how is impact embedded in uh, every single thing that a fund does in its team, in its processes, in its governance, in its incentives and in, in its execution. So we'll do sort of a deep dive on the funds to really understand what their, first of all, their intentionality. So what are the goals of the fund? What are the targets that they're setting at the level of a portfolio company? What are the reduction emission reduction targets that they're setting at they're, they're setting at the level of the overall portfolio? Mm -hmm. To what extent do they put their money where their mouth is? How do we know that they're going to deliver on those targets? You know, does it hurt them financially if they miss their impact targets? That's super important to know. Um, and what is, uh, who is responsible for impact within that team? How is impact uh, represented in the governance? Is, is impact, you know, uh, something that's important for their final decision making or is it a nice to have? And then what decisions do they really make? So when they actually invest in portfolio companies, what was the impact rationale? And do we think that is a solid enough impact rationale? This is how we try to separate greenwashing from like funds that are both intrinsically committed to and capable of realizing climate impact. Mm -hmm. So we score them on the scale of one to five, and they need to reach at least uh, three for them to progress towards the next step. In, so uh, here three is that you're Yeah, it's good forward. enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct. Not many funds have scored a four or above. Maybe in the future we can only select four funds. <laughs> yeah. One, one of the things that we also try to do is obviously work a lot with the funds on how they can improve their impact uh, policies and their impact execution. So there is still a lot to improve because it's very immature industry. A lot of these funds are super young. Everybody's figuring out, you know, what is impact? How do I, how do, I do that? How do I measure it? Uh, and so we, can, we have a big role to play in, in sharing best practices. The second step in that process is more of the financial point of view. You know, is this also a financially savvy investment? Because people are, are investing serious money with us and at times, you know, a significant chunk of your pension or, you know, the retirement gift that you got from your grandparents, your parents. So it matters. We don't want to lose that money. Carbon Equity offers a, a, a spectrum of funds from funds that have more of a market rate return uh, profile. So that's basically where you should, you know, get the same return as you would investing in any other venture capital or private equity fund to catalytic funds where it's really impact first and the returns may be lower or it might be riskier or it might be a longer term fund. Uh, and that's not for everybody, but for especially for high net worths who really want to allocate a share of their portfolio towards pure impact, that's where they can invest. So that financial diligence, we look at, okay, what was the, what's the historical track record of this fund? 
Uh, what returns have they delivered in the past? Uh, how many losses did they have? How many companies went bankrupt and why? What did they learn from this? What are the key risks in the fund and how are these risks mitigated? And from that, we make a decision to invest. And typically, we will invest between 5 and 15 million euros in a single fund. And then once we have committed to that fund, we open up that fund for retail investors, for private investors, through our platform. And people on our platform can basically say, I want to invest in a single fund or I want to invest in a basket of funds. So that's called a fund of funds. Yeah, sounds very unsexy, but it's a fund of funds. And in this fund of funds, what it offers is more diversification. So for example, if you're a current climate technology fund of funds, you invest in up to 200 different climate tech companies. And that's a very important strategy to mitigate your risk. The risk of returning less than one time your money in a single fund is, I think, 20%. But in a basket of seven funds, that's one and a half percent. So more diversification, investing in more companies is always lower risk. Yeah, and then very practically, uh, people can just sign up, uh, create an account online, uh, wire the money and <laughs> download the app to track the companies that you're invested in and uh, to follow all the education on the platform. And uh, so it's uh, pretty simple. You mentioned that you are trying to minimize the, um, how, do you, how do you call it, like ticket, the minimum entry yeah, ticket? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, how is that going? Or are there any regulatory um, obstacles or how, how does that work? Because yeah. obviously you might not, maybe want to open it up to all retail investors mm. and let's say starting from 100 euros like you can do with like let's say ETS or something yeah. like this but what's your plan for the future with this let's say yeah I'm not 100% sure yet um, I think you know the the vision is that ultimately as many people as possible can can participate but it also needs to make sense private equity is a high-risk asset it's typically illiquid meaning you're invested for like 10 years and you can't get out in the meantime so it needs to be suitable, right? So this is why we'll do it step by step. And so our step one was 100,000 euros minimum. Our step two was 10,000 euros minimum. Maybe at some point, what I believe, I, I think it would be quite interesting in technical terms to have an evergreen fund at some point where you can invest on a subscription basis. So every month you can invest like 100 euros and you just invest in sort of the rolling, you know, private markets ETF of uh, climate tech companies. I can see that some that is something that might work for like uh, for more retail investors. Um, but, you know, I have a 10 year timeline uh, with carbon equity. So we have the time to to figure that out and uh, to do things step by step. But def that definitely would be one of my dreams. Yeah. So there have been a different terms being thrown around in the climate uh, yeah. finance area. I mean, you, you talked about ESG investing, yes. impact investing, climate investing. So could you just briefly, you know, describe yeah. like each each of those for the, for yeah. the listeners? That's such an important question yeah. <laughs> because yeah. there is so much jargon yeah. here and so many terms and so many confusing terms so yeah. very important question um let's start with esg esg means uh, investing in companies that have good environmental social and governance standards um so environmental might mean that you're i don't know that you're not dumping toxic waste you know into the river behind your factory uh, diversity or sorry social might mean that you have fair pay or diversity and inclusion policies in your company and governance means that hopefully you have some a level of transparency uh, governance and you know uh, good corporate governance practices in your company now ESG has been confused with impact for the longest time um, 
But ESG has nothing to do with impact. ESG just means you're investing in a company that has good internal policies. And so if you look at your ESG tracker, and that this has been a big scandal or sort of a big scandal the past couple of uh, months, I would say, where everybody's like, hey, wait a minute, I thought ESG was impact, uh, but actually I'm investing in JP Morgan and Apple and uh, Facebook and Meta, etc. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I don't think that's a fault of ESG. I actually wrote a post about that two weeks ago. Uh, but it's a, what has gone wrong there is that ESG has been marketed as something that it's not. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. been marketed as, you know, this is an impact investment. It, it, it's just, it has nothing to do with that. Um, so ESG is investing in, and, and that doesn't mean that ESG is a hoax, right? Because the thesis of ESG is that if you invest in companies that have good environmental, social, and governance policies, you have less risk as an investor, uh-huh. right? And that's a reasonable assumption, right? So should we be investing in ESG funds? Yes, uh, but why? To mitigate the risk, our financial risk, but not to have impact. Uh-huh. So this is where impact investing comes in. And impact investing means, and in, in the, the core of impact means, you move a situation A into situation B as a result of your investment. And so there needs to be a, a causality mm-hmm. because you made this investment. Uh, something is different from uh, what it was before. This is why impact investing is typically hard to do in public markets because there is no direct impact or no direct effect of uh, you buying a share and something changing in the underlying economy. Typically, there's no direct effect, whereas in private markets, you can have, you know, if you invest 50,000 euros in a startup, a startup has 50,000 euros more to spend on hiring a product manager or doing a marketing campaign. <laughs> so there's a direct impact. Um, impact investing, though, comes at a scale because um, the more additionality you have, so let's say, you know, the less likely something would have, hap- would have happened without your investment, the more impact you have. So let's compare. Uh, investing in a company, uh, let's say a um, micromobility company. Let's take the the, 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 the the e-bikes, for example, that you can, the Lime bikes, okay? Now, Lime, we can say, is an impactful solution uh, because we have uh, electric micromobility and we can save car rides uh, and other uh, bad things. And this is good. So we can say it's an impactful company. Now, if I have an investor invest in Lime, do I have impact? Um, well, in a way, but uh, Lime is such a successful company that it will raise money regardless of you know you having your impact mission. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the additionality that you have as an investor in company Lime is a little bit, probably better than the stock market, but not huge. Mm-hmm. Now compare that to investing in solar panels in Africa, right? This is a company that has, or there's a lot of political risk in, in the country, um, uh, there is less capital available, the market is less mature, uh, etc. So this is a more risky investment. So there's simply fewer investors that are willing to invest in that uh, company. Uh, and therefore, if you invest, there's much greater additionality. So you have technically have more impact than if you had invested in the company that would have raised capital anyway. So basically, the, the one might say the harder it is to invest in that company, the more impact or additionality you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Additionality is also a term that's um, talked about with, let's say, carbon offsets, right? So yeah. um, do solutions get credits or like money um, 
that wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Concept. Just wanted to. Exactly. Uh, it's a very important concept in uh, in impact. It's also a very hairy topic because it's very difficult to measure. So we don't yet really have the right tools to measure additionality. As a result of which, it's a broad concept, but really hard to to put into practice. Yeah. And so we talked about a bunch of different things, all in a way or another connected to climate finance and the intersection of those. And although this is a booming industry, there's um, still a lot of, let's say, un uncertainty, but also a lot of potential for people to embark on a career in this area. And given your experience in VC, venture capital, private equity, uh, startups, um, the whole range, the whole range, everything. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, what what would be your advice for um, people, students, but also maybe more experienced um, people, professionals, working to wanting to work in climate finance or climate startups, climate tech, etc. Let me see. Maybe the starting point is. Um, what kind of role do you want to have and what type of environment do you want? Like what gives you energy? And I indeed have had the privilege of being on every side of the table. Um, so there are basically three sort of three flavors, if you will. Let's say you've got consultancy, you've got investing, you've got being in the startup, building the company. Um, and each requires different skills and also like gives you different energy. So for me, consultancy is a really good place to start because you see a lot of different companies being young. You see a lot of different problems. Every few weeks you have something else. It's very intensive teamwork. Um, and you learn a lot of frameworks and ways of working that are you know, established and that you can apply to businesses. So consultancy for me is always a very good sort of jump off point in your career. The flip side of consultancy is you're advising, you're not ultimately doing. And so the the great frustration of almost every strategy consultant after several years is, okay, but is it moving the needle? Because ultimately I leave a report and, and then I, 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 leave, I, I go away. So I don't really have accountability for the results. Um, then you've got investing. Investing is a special role. I think, you know, as an investor, you literally get to decide the shape of the future because, you know, you're, 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 you're betting on it with, with your money or someone, someone else's money. <laughs> it's mostly when you start. Um, investing is really about what do I believe in? Where is the world heading? And what solutions do I think will work best? And as an investor, also, you learn a lot because you see so many different companies and you talk to so many different entrepreneurs and you really get a feel for what works and also what entrepreneurs are going to be successful. It's a super cool analytical job. Like you learn so much, so many different industries and you have to dive deep into everything. Um, the flip side of investing for me was you're standing on the sidelines, you know, so you're seeing a lot of companies and you're advising companies, you're helping them, but ultimately it's not your company. So you have less ownership of this company. Um, uh, and it's more individual work than typically in consultancy. So if you're super analytical, you want to learn, you're super hungry to learn so many different things and see different things and you get energy from working with entrepreneurs, then, you know, being an investor is a, is a great idea. And then if you really want to be a startup entrepreneur, if you have that dream, investing is not a good alternative. <laughs> like maybe it's a good way to start, you know, and to see things. But then as soon as possible, start your own company. I, <laughs> I've had that dream. It took me a long time to really get started. So um, uh, building a company, yeah, for me is the most beautiful thing uh, one can do, but that's very personal, right? Um, building a company is really 
yeah, about doing the work, you know, and, and, and going for every phase in the process. Like also if you're young and you join a startup, especially early stage startup, what is really cool is that you probably do everything, you know, you, like I have an associate and he, he's my right hand. And so he does sales with me, but he also does strategy and he joins me in hiring. And so in an early stage company, you get to see every aspect of building a company. It's fast paced. Uh, and what is cool about entrepreneurship or build, working in a startup or a scale up is you really see the results. You know, a year later, you look back and you're like, oh, wow, last year we were like five people and now we're 16. And you really see the company progressing. And I think for me, that's a really great joy. It's also the way that you learn. So, you know, if you learn really well from seeing other people, from being taught, then consultancy is the best place because you get the most structured learning experience. Investing is a good place because you see a lot of things. But uh, building a company, you, you do all those things. And for me personally, that's the way I learn best, for example. So I think the starting point is, you know, what gives you energy? Uh, what are your superpowers also? Like, what, what is the thing that you uniquely do best and where does that fit best? And then start reaching out. And like a couple of ways that you can do that is I actually get quite a lot of requests personally of people who are like, hey, I want to work in, you know, in the green space. What would you advise me to do? Like, I obviously don't have time to to accommodate everyone, but it's really worthwhile. Try reaching out to somebody that you admire, that you think, you know, works in a space where you want to be. Often people are much more open than you think in like entertaining you and, ha and spending some time and, and giving you some advice or helping you leverage their network, for example. So I would definitely recommend no matter how young you are or how little experience you have in you know, just approaching people uh, and asking for their input or help. There are also a lot of job boards. So for example, Climate Tech VC is a really cool newsletter. They have a job board where there are a lot of like internship opportunities. Um, so I definitely recommend having a look at that. University boards will have them. And then if there are companies that you think are cool and that you you know feel feel would be cool, you know, just write them. And uh, even if they don't have any vacancy, just say, hey, I'm really interested. Introduce yourself and see where that takes you. So mm -hmm. just uh, look around. Yeah, really, really great advice. And I'm um, definitely like, I agree. Just having a really good understanding of your skill set. And, yeah. and like what gives you energy is so necessary to yes. make that decision of, okay, I want to be a consultant or I want to be an investor. Or yeah. I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, I just have one comment to this because I feel yeah. like I really appreciate you saying the word energy because I feel like a lot of times this is not really emphasized by, let's say, yeah. career consultants or yes. in universities. They don't tell you much about yeah. What's your energy? What's your spark? They tell yeah. you skills, 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 or like, what's your CV like? And yeah. this, this is a very important yeah. aspect. It really is. And, and it's, um, it's something that we can, uh, that we're all, when we think about it, we can be much more aware of. Like, even like even if you never had work experience, like at university, you do certain projects and there are some moments that you just feel energized, you know, you feel uh, top of the world, you feel great about yourself and you feel, and then there are activities that deplete you. You know, for me, I suck at finance. Like I really, okay, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an investor. <laughs> like I really, I, I suck yeah. at it. And I really suck at legal stuff and it drains my energy. I do not want to read contracts. Okay, there are a lot of very competent people in carbon equity who do all this work. So... <laughs> So, but I'm, I'm very good at hiring very competent people. <laughs> this is my superpower. But listen to your energy. Just map it, you know, and start paying attention and it's going to steer you in the right direction. I'm going to ask the, the last question, right? Yeah. Um, so what's what's next for, for Carbon Equity? Um, kind of what are the plans for the next couple of years and uh, what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah. Um, well, I really want to move the needle. Um, I'm 
because we don't have time to not move the needle. Uh, so my ambition with carbon equity is to invest at least 10 billion in, uh, in climate technology in the next 10 years uh, with uh, at least 10,000 investors, if not more. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's important that we get there because if we cannot get to that kind of scale, I don't think we're doing, we're spending our time in the most worthwhile way. Mm -hmm. So uh, the ambition is to become the global go-to climate private equity platform where everybody, and maybe not even, maybe we'll go beyond climate one day. I think the whole, what I would like to inspire is a new way of thinking about money. What if we start to think about money not as um, what we have, but what it enables us to do, mm -hmm. right? Like thinking about money not as a goal in itself, but as a means to build the future. Mm -hmm. And what if we start, you know, spending money on solving real world problems instead of investing in crypto or, you know, uh, speedy grocery deliveries, etc. I mean, not to say that those are not good solutions. I think there can be value in crypto. I think there can be mm -hmm. value in like instant grocery delivery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <But> <laughs> on, on a Sunday night when you arrive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's also very mission critical. Yeah. But um, we have so many crises, which are also interlinked, right? Climate change, biodiversity, but also uh, inequality. I mean, in London, it's obvious, you know, the, the homeless and this problem. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so I really think it's very, very interesting to start thinking about capital as a building block with which we can help solve the world's biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I want Carbon Equity to be the place where people can help solve the world's biggest challenges through capital. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, so it's so a near term. That means we're trying to internationalize. So we did a pretty good job in the Netherlands. We have 85 million in assets under management now. So that's decent for a year. Um, on, on, on track to 10 billion. Well, <laughs> long way to go. <laughs> um, I, I have time, you know. Um, so we want to go international next year, go to the UK and go to Germany. We have investors uh, wanting to come on board from Australia, from Mexico. Um, so I want to take it global. And then, you know, for me, I see sort of my personal career uh, as like another 30 years mm -hmm. of which I want to build ideally three times a company, three times 10 years. Mm -hmm. So first 10 years on carbon equity mm -hmm. and... And I think I would really want to spend the next 10 years back in emerging markets mm -hmm. because I think that's where, you know, you have some of the biggest challenges to solve. Sure. And when a place in Manila where there's like, I don't know, two electric cars in a city of like 20 exactly. million people. Wow, there's such a big low hanging fruit opportunity mm -hmm. that I'm really itching to take. And uh, and I think that's where maybe we can even have more impact. So like for me, Carbon Equity is really also a starting point in my journey to also start to learn like where is the real problem and what is mm -hmm. the highest leverage, highest impact thing I can mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. to help contribute here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just all goes back to, you, you know, what gives you energy? Like what, can, yeah. what do you want to do? Um, and, and definitely like I think emerging markets are an area that more people need to talk about. And yes. The potential for leapfrogging. Yes. You know? um, I think yes. that's. I think definitely that's what more people need to start talking about and um, you know, exactly. bringing really valuable solutions from, yeah. from you know, North America, from yeah. Europe and, and really scaling that in, in, in these emerging markets. Exactly. And leapfrogging is the right word. Yeah. Uh, so I already have a name in mind for my next company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we never asked you about the, the name for carbon equity, actually. Yeah. The, the name for my next company will be today. And it's about like, how today. can we finance, you know, better uh, low carbon yeah. or no carbon alternatives 
today because every euro that we invest in uh, in coal mines, in fossil intensive exactly. infrastructure is a sunk cost for the next 30 years. Yeah. So today is about how can we change our solutions <laughs> today? Exactly. Carbon equity, uh, it fell from the sky. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah, but um, I mean, I really enjoyed this talk. It's so inspiring, yeah. Jacqueline. Um, we could talk another three hours, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm pretty sure that um, this was this is so valuable for all our listeners, be it at the Imperial College Business School, also beyond. So many thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Of course, it was a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, we'll all be following Carbon Equity in the, at least <laughs> next 10 years. <laughs> yes, sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Do that. And yeah, you, you have many social media, right? You have a LinkedIn. I do, Twitter, yeah. And, yeah. Um, Feel free to connect in the show notes. Cool. All right. Great. Thank you for having me. (laughs)